Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So uh, obviously super excited with the guests that we have today. And then just before we get started, you know, just a, a little plug here because the book that I'm launching is, is literally coming out. It's going to be out now by the time that you're listening to this. It's called Selling Your Startup. It's been four years in the making. Basically a guide and a roadmap to really help you understand on how you're packaging and positioning your business. In order to be acquired, there was none of this out there on the market. And I thought that it was about time to put an end to the madness. So that's why the book came out. out. Uh, there is great founders, about 20 of them that have sold their company for over 500 million each and even over a billion uh, that are getting behind it. So it's been really a privilege to have them, an honor to have them, and uh, obviously a bigger, an even bigger honor to be able to put this in front of you all. So Excited to see what you all think. So again, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever you think. And it's coming out uh, now on July 27th. So without further ado here, what I'd like to do is I'd like to dive into our episode today. We have an amazing guest. Uh, I think that we're going to be learning a lot about scaling, about product market fit, about issues with really you know building and, and, and ramping things up, about raising a lot of money and also not being in one of those hotspots where you typically have access to all that capital and talent. So I think it's going to be very interesting to, to hear how they actually did it, how him and his team did it. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Tony Addy. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. So originally born and raised in Buffalo, New York, from a family of immigrants from Italy, I guess, the ancestors. So tell us about growing up there. Uh, you know, looking back, Rust Belt City, but man, blue collar work ethic, wonderful people, very ethnic. We had the honor of being one of the only Italian families, ironically enough, in an Irish neighborhood. And uh, my first entrepreneurial start was that of a paper boy, which I had in, in middle school. And, and I saw that work ethic from my parents and my grandparents. And while it's not a classical entrepreneurial city uh, in terms of startup companies and venture capital, that work ethic is ingrained in you from a young age, and it, it never leaves you. It's a wonderful place to be from. That's amazing. So I guess, uh, you know, from, from such a young age, like you were saying, like a paper, I mean, what, what were some of the lessons that, that you learned? Because I think that you were very fortunate, you know, because there are so many people that are coming out of university, not really understanding, you know, like the labor market or making money or, or having that type of, of ambition. I mean, what, what did you get out of that experience? 
Well, I, I give this lesson to my kids. They roll their eyes when they hear it, but mounted on the wall of my office is the side of a Buffalo News paper wagon uh, that, that I carried my papers around. And if you know Buffalo, New York in the wintertime, uh, that's an op- occupational hazard. But you'd be amazed when you take jobs like that, whether it's as a paper boy or mowing lawns or, or shoveling driveways, you learn customer service. Uh, you learn how to deal with management. If, if, if your deliveries aren't on time, the call didn't go to me back in those days, it went to my parents on a Saturday morning at 6.30 a.m. And that was not a board of directors meeting you wanted to see at breakfast if you came home late. You learn financial accounting, how to keep your books straight, how to manage your finances. And you also learn labor relations, that when you can't make a particular delivery, you have to pay up if you want your younger sister to do it for you. And I say it all tongue in cheek, but they were incredible lessons ingrained very young in me. And we were all expected to pitch in and work and contribute in different ways. And I was never always the smartest student, whether it was high school, college, or or postgraduate degrees, but you can never outwork me. Uh, And that was a trait that I took all the way through my entrepreneurial journey, even today. That's amazing. Uh, And I'm sure that for you, I mean, you you were there in Buffalo, New York, but eventually you decided that it was time to pack the bags and go to California. So what, what triggered that? It was unexpected. Uh, I had finished my, my undergraduate degree at Ithaca College. I was expected to, to pursue a medical degree like, like many in my family. Uh, and I threw everyone a curveball and, and had an opportunity to interview and ultimately go to the University of Southern California for graduate school. And arguably, Alejandro, that, that's had one of the most dramatic impacts on, on my career. Uh, I had never been west of the Mississippi. I was exposed to a completely different culture and, and way of thinking that you saw on the West Coast. This was the late 90s. So startup companies were all the rage. Venture capital from the Valley all the way down to Los Angeles was very common. Uh, and, and I had the good fortune to, to work on a program at the university that was very applied, uh, had collaborations with Caltech and, and NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So whether I realized it or not, uh, the program that I was working on was very applied in nature and it exposed me to everything from, from Asia interest in, in technology innovation in America to venture capital. And it, I've, I've, put me on a completely different and unexpected career trajectory in and around sustainability and environmental uh, technologies. I mean, talking about like a different trajectory, I mean, it was a PhD in organic chemistry, what you ended up doing. Well, you know, my, my, my professor put a, put a hard sell on me, said, you know, a medical degree would be very focused. And I decided I really didn't want to pursue medicine, but he looked at sort of a PhD in organic chemistry as sort of a platform approach where it touches so many different parts of the hard sciences that if you had a fundamental understanding and application there, uh, you can excel in many fields. I had the benefit, ironic given that I'm in clean tech and sustainability, of looking at those applications in the conventional oil and gas field. And when you look at sort of a legacy industry looking to avoid being disrupted, you see their behavior and, and they're very proficient in adoption of new technologies. And it was a great experience for me to see that from the inside out. In this case, I mean, for you, you ended up landing in NASA, out of all places. I mean, how, how, how was that for you? It was an incredible opportunity. Southern Cal and NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory had a joint collaborative research initiative in the area of, of energy conversion technologies and fuel cells. And I was incredibly lucky uh, that my advisors entrusted me the ability to represent USC, uh, first as a research scientist and then as a postdoc at uh, at the Jet Propulsion Lab, where you can see real-world application of your R&D. I joked that many of my colleagues at USC would sort of show up in their own hours. I was expected to be there first thing in the morning, and as the, the, the young one, the last one to shut out the lights uh, in the evening. 
and to see the work ethic and the dedication, particularly at the time the Mars Rover program was just kicking off, it was an incredible impact on, on my career in terms of working with those professionals. So then why the shift to private equity? Because that's quite of a big, big change there. Well, I, I, I broke my advisor's heart and, and I had to come to the realization that I was a good but not a great scientist. I, I enjoyed research and development, but I loved its application in real world settings. And given that the technology that we were working on, technologies we were working on, batteries and fuel cells, had so many real world sustainability applications in the late 90s, that as the venture capital and technology community came calling, it was just hard to ignore it. And with a number of partners, we were able to set up a boutique energy technology investment fund in New York City, where instead of just going to work in one particular discipline, now I was like a scientist in a candy store, where everyday entrepreneurs and technologists would bring world-changing innovation that I got to sift through and ultimately advise on investment decisions. And it was just a wonderful experience. So it, it sounded like as well, like when you went into this private equity you know, type of uh, role, that you started to see like how things may look like from the other side of the table, not from the operating role. And in fact, you ended up doing a transition, you know, after having placed a bet into one of those, uh, you know, kind of like a funds or of some sort, you became a entrepreneur in residence. And then yes. that led really to, um, to, to, to you really getting on the operating part. So, so what, what, and especially for the people that are listening, what is an entrepreneur in residence? What is the role? Well, well, first, but before that took on, uh, my secret weapon was as a technologist, I could go deep into the university and engage with professors and technologists one-on-one. It's an area where venture capitalists normally avoid because it's really hard work. You have to evaluate intellectual property as much as you tech, do technology. And it's often unproven at that stage. But from our fund's perspective, that's where the fun was. But what I very quickly learned early on is I could only advise on so many deals per year, and there was only so many resources available to do investments. And once those investments are made, guess what? Your shareholders expect a return. So at that point, the entrepreneurial and residence role typically used in venture capital funds, most often with early stage companies, are areas where the investor takes people off the bench and puts them into operating roles in the company. It's an opportunity for the the company to defer resources and really focus on R&D and technical development where the entrepreneur and residents can take on multiple functions. Alejandro, depending on the day of the week, I was VP of BizDev, Strategic Partnerships, and HR. And I like to think I provided a critical role to that company's particular founder so he could focus on the R&D needed to perfect the technology and the investors felt comfortable that we had a man on the inside. And it was a wonderful experience to take on the other side the operating role, and see it from the entrepreneur's perspective. So coming through at that point in my career, I had the unique experience, the lucky experience, of having seen technology innovation from the eyes of a research and development scientist, from the eyes of an investor, and now from the eyes of an, of an operator. And, and that's sort of the, the three critical areas for successful entrepreneurship. And I think that even something that, that to add on that, that at least in my opinion is even bigger, is that as part of this uh, opportunity, you were able to see the full cycle of companies. I mean, you were actually yes. part of this company that, that ended up going through an acquisition. I mean, when you are able to see the creation, the fundraising, the scaling, and then the exit, it's like now you got the, the full 360-degree view that not, not a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, re- I mean, most entrepreneurs don't have. So I think that what kind of visibility would you say that gave you? Well, 
so, so the one interesting thing is venture capital to date, even in the in the late '90s, early 2000s, has become very institutionalized. And by that, I mean the funds have become so big. You oftentimes hear investors or entrepreneurs talk about one out of every 10 companies succeed. Well, the fund I was at didn't have that luxury. We were dealing with high net worth private investment who didn't want to see nine companies fail. So instead of investing in 10 and hoping that one survived, we invested in four or five. And then the four or five partners got active with all four or five. So the interesting aspect is we all really pulled for one another. We shared experiences in the various operating roles that we had and had a remarkable success rate where several companies went public and others were acquired. So it gives you a much greater appreciation for the invested dollar and shareholder value from that perspective, as opposed to just trying to find that one in 10 loading up on that one, and then the other nine just fall by the wayside. So you get a much better appreciation of the entire investment cycle from the technology development to the investor's due diligence to the role that the entrepreneur plays in building his or her own company. And then it really puts you in a unique position to add value. Uh, and, and seeing that from the inside out, while not always appreciating it at the time, is certainly what I brought with me in launching uh, Phenomic. And talking about Phononic, which is your baby. We're going to be talking about your baby very it soon. Is. But, but, but talking, about, talking about Phononic and I guess, you know, like the, the sequence of events that led to Phononic. So when, during this time of, of this operating role and helping, you know, as an entrepreneur in residence, you actually were right after recruited by a tier one VCs, uh, basically to, yes. to help them in doing diligence for one of those opportunities that they were uh, running, which which eventually really led to the to the incubation of the idea of Phononic and, and, and to the creation of Phononic. So walk us through that sequence of events. Well, on one hand, I just got done complaining that venture capital has become so institutionalized in terms of size of the fund, but they're not all like that. There are still investors out there doing greenfield or open space investment or, or whatever whatever term is used. And after exiting that, that company from an entrepreneur's and residence role, you ultimately build a network of investors all around the country. Uh, and in reaching out to them, looking for the next investment opportunity, I was quite literally given this pitch, which Alejandro, it's been the first slide and the first discussion of every engagement I've ever had on Phenomic, and that is Silicon Valley is not randomly named. Silicon as a semiconductor material has transformed our way of life. Data, communications, solar, more recently, LIDAR and LED lighting. Yet in the world of refrigeration and cooling, 200 years of mechanically driven compressors, unsustainable, brute force, yet $50 billion a year in annualized market opportunity. Why haven't semiconductors impacted that space? Tony, we want you to find that out for us. That was quite literally the conversation I had with Matt Trevithick, my co-founder, who at the time was at Venrock. Not knowing where to begin, I leveraged the contacts I had at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. Turns out Alejandro, semiconductors had made inroads in cooling and refrigeration. There's an entire class of physics called thermoelectric cooling, the principles of which are almost as old as the compressor. Yet the commercial efficacy and viability has been gated by efficiency, scale, and cost. That's going to come up later because that was effectively the business plan for Phenomic. I didn't know it at the time, but I called a whole bunch of people in my network, went on an almost two-month listening tour where I finally looked back and say I met with every liar and thief in academia at all of the world's major research universities, understanding everything I could about thermoelectric cooling and its commercial inadequacies, 
and came back to the investor group with a recommendation of a handful of universities that were doing interesting work and a loosely structured business model. And quite literally, Alejandro, that afternoon in the fall of 08, I was given a term sheet and Phenonic was born that afternoon. It's the rawest, most exciting entrepreneurial experience I, I can think of. Wow. Why did you do it out of North Carolina, out of all places? So I, that wasn't supposed to be the home. The, the entrepreneur in residence role I had taken happened to be in North Carolina. And I had prepped my family that the investors asked me to do this diligence or the, the blue chip investors in the Valley, Silicon Valley, get prepared, we're going to leave. Well, for the first 18 months of Phenomics life, we were in hardcore research and development mode, working with a handful of universities as a virtual company with me on a plane. And while that was cost effective, it certainly wasn't healthy. So roughly 18 months into the engagement, the board sort of called me out and said, you can't live like this. Uh, you know, we now are seeing promise in the technology and needs a commercial home. So I had a completely clean slate. I looked at the Valley. I looked at Arizona. I looked at uh, Austin, Texas. I looked at Boston, conventional areas of semiconductor and material science. And lo and behold, in my own backyard, particularly on the campus of NC State University, was an entire semiconductor material science infrastructure that we've been able to leverage quite, quite successfully. And that's a Phenonics first official home uh, with that decision having been made. That's amazing. So then in this case, I mean, how did you guys go about, you know, I mean, just, 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 just for the people that are listening to get, I mean, what ended up being the business model of, of Phenonic? Depends on the day of the week, Alejandro, with respect to the business model. Here's where the hard work comes in. You know, semiconductor cooling, thermoelectric cooling, talked about for 25 years. Nobody's been able to crack that just yet. Well, we were starting to see technical proficiencies that suggested we really had something. And the mistake you make with a disruptive technology company and all the romance that you hear about is you just expect industries to be ready to disrupt themselves. It doesn't work that way. So the irony in our business model is sort of we've now finally come back to where we started, which is we believed in areas of refrigeration and cooling and air conditioning, we would provide the design for our product and then sell the associated semiconductor device that we manufacture right here in Durham. Clean, looked good on paper, capital effective plan with effectively high gross margin right up until I had to put it into practice. When you're a disruptive technology company and you provide to even the most progressive customers your design, they don't just rush to design you in. And we learned very difficult early on that if we just dropped a paper design and a thumbnail-sized chip on someone's desk, making the broad declarative statements of what we could do, it would be forever in a day until they moved. So probably the most painful, but the most rewarding part of Phenonics career is we quite literally morphed ourselves into a refrigeration and freezer company. And depending upon the segment, we were selling chips, full refrigerators, and full freezers, demonstrating the efficacy of what our technology can do. Generated an incredible intellectual property portfolio required tens of millions of dollars in venture capital, as well as a global supply chain, and candidly almost broke our back. But then when the technology finally took hold, and you could really see that value proposition with some focus, we've ultimately got back to that more effective business model where we sell devices, 
In some select cases, we will sell products. And in others, we will license the technology so our brand partners can take that burden on on their own. Got it. So then, so then what was that day where you realized that product market fit was present? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the date, Alejandro, when I remember that it wasn't present. And that was Halloween of 2019. Um, we had a variety of products all over the market. We had a variety of products in all different segments. We were burning through a tremendous amount of cash. And I don't mind saying one of our largest investors took me to the venture capital version of the woodshed and said, you can't run like this. This is too exciting of a company. You're too talented of an entrepreneur and you've built too great of a team. You got to tighten this up. And it was really at that meeting where we made the faithful decision to really zero in on three particular segments. One that we call micro cooling, optical components, 5G communications, data transmission, and LIDAR. Boring by venture capital standards, but tight, sticky business model where our chips provided performance nobody else could get. At the time, seemed to make sense. Second was a warehouse logistics program for food, very nascent in our development, but one that was now for the first time, Alejandro, governed by actual market research and not my, my reaction. And then the third was everything from vaccine storage to ice cream, uh, where we would license the designs to our refrigerators and freezers. That was when I recognized the product market fit wasn't there, but those three decisions would get us there. And then candidly and very humbly, Roughly right at the beginning of the pandemic, each one of those segments exposed just how mission critical our cooling solutions are. And it was roughly July 4th of 2020 where we recognized that hold was there. And we've been holding on for dear life ever since, scaling and doubling and increasing the size, scope, and capacity of the company. It's been quite gratifying to have gone through that experience. And, and how much capital have you guys raised to date? including the most recent $50 million financing that we just closed from Goldman Sachs that puts us at roughly $230 million in capital to date. Wow. Well, Tony, that's a lot of zeros for being in North Carolina. <laughs> you know, when you, when you can connect, I, I tell this to entrepreneurs all the time, particularly those who are outside classical areas of, 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 of the Valley or, or Boston, investors ultimately don't care. If you can connect the dot, particularly in our case, of a disruptive value proposition, one with a dramatic environmental, social, and governance value with a proven economic value solution, you can bring in dollars from all around the world. And we've always believed that, and we've been putting it into practice now, particularly the last 18 to 24 months. Got it. And so, I mean, you, you've done, obviously, several rounds here. So I guess yes. as part of that journey of, of, of raising money, because I'm sure that you know, you've raised money from, from investors all over the world, I guess what has been you know, perhaps that hurdle um, with them when they saw that you were not in one of those hot, you know, hubs for for startups like, let's say, New York or uh, Silicon Valley or, or whatever that is. What has been some of those hurdles? Because I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of people that are listening and, and watching and that they are also outside of one of those hubs. And they're wondering, man, I wonder how Tony did it. And maybe, you know, something that, that I could learn from from what worked for him. Well, let's be careful. It's how Tony's doing it. And, and I guess the answer to your question, Alejandro, is very stage specific because the scrutiny has gotten a lot tougher over the last two to three years. In the early stages of phononics development, and this is true for any of your entrepreneurs who are listening, when we're in hardcore technology development stage, 
investors tend to be less critical as to where you are, particularly in a remote world like we're at now, because the belief is scientists, softwares, material science, while the Valley certainly has, has a concentration of that skill set, there's smart people all around the country. So in the early development, the investors were satisfied that I was able to show them that, hey, our technical team, our engineering team is best in class. And it was hard to argue with that when you looked at the technical capabilities of what we were proving every day of the week. It gets much more discerning as the company matures from just technology development to a product, and then that product goes into the market. Alejandro, we aspire to be a multi-billion dollar company. The size of the market is there. The ESG solutions we provide are obvious. That's now our mission and mandate. So the, the discerning criticism that we have to answer, the hurdles to, to, to use your words, is can we find sales, engineering, and marketing executives who have managed a large P&L before? And I have this conversation in North Carolina, all, North Carolina all the time. This is my home. This is the ecosystem that we want to build. So you have to be willing to either relocate or coach up and mentor your team such that they can give investors confidence that they're not just smart technical people, but they can really understand, drive, and scale the P&L of a business. And that's ultimately the, uh, the question that you have to answer. And we're answering that every day of the week. Got it. Very cool. I love it. And then in terms of people, you know, you were alluding to people. How, how many people do you guys have now? We're roughly 250 people in the company right now. Roughly 100 of them are, are manufacturing technicians and operators as we manufacture all of our chips here in Asia. And we've been growing dramatically our sales and marketing team. Like all companies that entered into the pandemic, I made that comment about the sort of woodshed moment in late 2019. We had to lock and load on really just engineering and a few couple type product sales and marketing segments. And now that we've seen that traction, we're making up for lost time on everything from HR to sales to marketing and PR is we now want to tell our story all around the world. And obviously now you are in this rocket ship, right? You know, you have enough employees to, um, to, to get people excited. But when you are in areas, you know, outside of those hot hubs where they're like more used to, let's say, you know, hyper growth, like super early stage type of companies, they tend to be like a little bit more conservative when it comes to career choices. So how were you able to really enroll people into the possibility and the future and what you guys were able to achieve by bringing them on board, you know, in North Carolina there? That's a, that's a great question, and, and, and it impacts multiple stages of your career. Uh, and I'm so glad you asked it, because it, it goes back to that romanticizing entrepreneurship as if the decision to start or j start a company, join a startup company, or take what would be deemed to be professional risk is this cataclysmic decision. I started as a paper boy from Buffalo. You were expected to work at the same company for 50 years. Yeah. I am not a risk taker. When I go skiing on vacation, I take the slow blue hills while my kids do all the double black diamonds. So I try to personalize the experience with people that interview at Phenomic, which is there are ways you can mitigate and de-risk risk by being smart, by being disciplined, by leveraging your talents in ways that the organization really needs. This perception that startup companies are is this beehive of people going 100 miles an hour yeah, there's certainly elements of truth to that. But if that's how the company is run on a prolonged basis, it is not going to be in business very long. So the challenge is early on, you have to mentor and coach those initial employees that this is a very risk, de-risk decision 
based upon the plan, based upon the objectives, based upon the capital that we've raised, and based upon the investors at the table. And then as you mature, the cell becomes a little different, where you can say to more mature employees who come from much larger companies, hey, we're bringing you in because you've got the discipline, you've got the gravitas, and you've got the moxie that the organization requires. I very rarely zero in on this esprit de corps or, or, or this, this, this reckless um, mindset that you sometimes correlate with venture capital or startup companies. So I, I try and personalize it for myself but then personalize it for the person that's interviewing so they can see that, hey, this should be considered as a career choice, just like a Fortune 500 company. That's amazing. You know, I, I love that because I find that entrepreneurship at the end of the day is just like you were saying, like they're risking, but more important than that, simplifying the journey and everything around that journey yeah. for everyone else that, that you want to bring on board, whether it's employees, customers, investors because they need to get it. They need to really feel that that future and possibility. So in this case, when we're thinking about what's possible, imagine, Tony, that you go to sleep tonight and it's the biggest snooze of your life. You wake Al up like... Alejandro, Alejandro, we have a question at Phenomics that the devil never sleeps, but I'll, 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 I'll spend that for you. Well, imagine you're doing catch-up, okay, and you go to sleep tonight and you wake okay. up in a world where the vision of Phenomics is fully realized. What does that world look like? Uh, we we want to fundamentally transform the ability to cool. We want you to have modular, distributed cooling and refrigeration solutions for every facet of your lifestyle. The way you eat, the way you communicate, the way you drive in an autonomous vehicle. Phenomic solutions have the promise to play a disruptive role in each one of them. And seeing that impact not just customers, that's easy, but seeing them impact society. That's what we're driving towards. Whether it's my dad who wants a quieter refrigerator or my son who thinks autonomous vehicles are cool, Phenomic Solutions are going to bring those applications to life. When I wake up, I want to see that in action. That's amazing. So imagine now, I mean, Tony, it's been 12 years, 12 years with Phenomic, 12 years full yeah. of lessons learned, full of ups, full of downs. I mean, everything in between that is really building and scaling a company. But imagine that I put you into a time machine. And that I'm able to bring you back in time to that moment where maybe you were looking into this, thinking that maybe there was something to do. Uh, but right, obviously, before, even before you got that term sheet from those uh, investors that changed everything. But imagine you're able to have a sit down with that younger Tony. And you're able to give that younger Tony one piece, only one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Uh, that's that's a hard question because my nature wants me to say something inspirational to my younger self. Persistence, vision, don't quit. Because as I look back, that unbridled enthusiasm and that unbridled persistence through all of the, the tortuous things that we've experienced is why we're now here and in, in, in getting in getting traction and seeing the gratification of all the hard work that we put in. If I had to give my younger self a tactical bit of advice that's maybe a bit more boring, it would be discipline. You simply have to be disciplined in how you spend money and how you pick objectives and how you pick customers and how you pick markets. And then with that discipline, you can let your enthusiasm, you can let your persistence loose. Um, some would argue that the word I'm looking for is focus. They're probably right, but it's fun sometimes to get a little unfocused. So I would say if I if I really sat down with myself, I'd 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 give that uplifting speech.
speech of of persistence, don't quit, don't give in uh, when others when others want you to. And if it was tactical, I'd say be disciplined in in every aspect of how you execute and operate your business. And we 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 were and I love that by the way. But you know we were talking about before about the risking the the journey. Yeah. You know? And I guess that as people say, history repeats. And 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 obviously, I'm sure that you've been able to read some stuff that has you know given you kind of like a different perspective or perhaps, you know, some guidance as you were really doing something for the very first time, right? Which is sure. building phononic. So in that, in that sense, what would you say has been a book that you wish you would have read sooner? I, so I, I want to be careful because I can't wait to read your book. Um, <laughs> zero, z, z, zero to one had a dramatic influence on me because it, particularly the one, the one chapter of when you find a product in a particular product segment, ensure that it's 10 times better than the incumbent and then own that segment. And back to the discipline that the younger Tony Addy and his company could have used at any one point in time, we might've had a half a dozen products that met that 10 X improvement over the incumbent uh, and only got part of the way into taking over that respective market segment. And that's where discipline came back to bite us where of the six or seven that you could own, let's really own three. So I really wish I would have read that book in, in 17 or 18 when Phononic was really at the, 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 the advent of its product marketing process. You know, at the time, we had, we had sort of stumbled upon through a whole lot of hard work, the performance metrics needed to be commercially viable. And we were so excited that we had reached that threshold that we went after everything, often at the same time. In some cases, it was pridefully driven. I'm going to shut up the skeptics who had given me a hard time up until then. In others, it was technologically driven. We could measure just how great we were. And in others, it was product driven where somebody paid us to do it. And that's a hard way where reading zero to one after the fact in that sort of 2019 timeframe, I had to look very dispassionately at the five, six or seven things that we were doing or could do and say, you know what, here's really where there's a 10x improvement. And here's really one where we can own that market and let's go get it. And while hindsight's always 2020, if you look at those three segments that have been absolutely electrified over the last 18 months, my goodness, that zero to one argument is spot on for each one of them. So then, so, and that, that's from Peter Thiel, so a great book. So I guess yes. um, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi, Tony? Uh, so our, our, our social handles are, are all active at, at Twitter. Uh, I respond uh, to posts, but really LinkedIn, um, I'm open to invitations and I'm open to requests. Anthony Addy, I go by my, my formal first name on LinkedIn and I have inquiries that come in all the time. I, I really don't filter. I try and respond to each one. So either my Twitter handle at Anthony Addy or my LinkedIn profile are the two easiest ways to to, to reach out. Be a little patient with me. We've got a lot going on, but uh, I always try and help however I can. Amazing, Tony. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Our pleasure. Thank you, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.